0: In 1984, Joe Dever released the first of the Lone Wolf game books, introducing readers to the Kai Lords and the world of Magnamon in which you were the hero. Now, 40 years later, those books are coming back and we're here to talk about them. It's the Journeys through Magnamon podcast. Welcome to Journeys Through Magnumon, the official Lone Wolf podcast with myself, Jonathan Stark, sometimes known as Zip on the community. And I'm August Hahn. Good to meet you. And today we are doing a very special episode. It's not our Christmas episode. Uh, (laughs) It's not a very special Christmas on Magnumon.
1: Right. Charlie Brown is nowhere to be seen. (laughs)
0: <laughs> the last of the Kai, Charlie <laughs> Brown. <laughs> no, today is a transitional episode. We have just finished uh, the uh, posting the fifth episode of the series, which brings the
1: Kai series to a close. Books right. one through five. Right, and I did one of the very first questions that we got uh, on Facebook was when we were putting out the the lineup of how Home Guard Press was going to do the books. We got a question: was What are these series? What are you talking about? Uh, so, might not be a bad idea to just mention how the how the numbers work. Actually, that's a great idea. All right, so so book ones through what books one through
0: five that makes up the Kai series and. This is where you are a Kai Initiate. You are really still dealing with the aftermath of the destruction of your order. Then books 6 through 12 deal with the Magna Kai series, where you take on a quest to regain the powers that, were, that would have been taught to you by your Kai Masters had they not all been slaughtered. So now you have to go out and, and take on this epic journey following in the footsteps of the very first Kai Lord, a sun Eagle and find these lore stones. Do
1: you want to talk about the lore stones, August? Uh, sure. Oh, absolutely. So the lore stones are these glowing palm sized stones that were imbued by Kai with all of the knowledge uh, through, uh, Nixator, the great dragon, uh, That were imbued with his power, knowledge of the Kai abilities, and in essence, they were created as the MacGuffins for the Magna Kai series. Uh, But they were the objects that would allow you to actually become a Magna Kai, which is the the step where you are a Kai master and you are building towards even greater power. Right. So it's kind of like a big level
0: up, you know, in in Dungeons and Dragons terms... You've reached level 10 at the end of book five, essentially. Right. And, you know, that was always a level if, in, in Dungeons and Dragons where the, the focus changed. And that's really what happens in the Magna Kai series is you start dealing with events that not only affect this world, but other
1: dimensions. Right. Old school gamers would call it name level.
0: Yes, yeah, that's a yes, and you definitely do have name recognition, right? Uh, throughout the Magna Kai series, sometimes it helps you, sometimes uh is a detriment. Actually,
1: the, Mag- the Magna Kai series is, is one of the first times where you really there are entire missions that you have to spend in disguise. And missions is a great way to put
0: it. it. You know, the Magna Kai series is like this travel log. Uh, each yep. lore stone gives you an excuse to go to a different part of the world, and you always have this really clear goal of find the lore stone. And uh, it's a really good framing device, and it, it works so well that it really doesn't tire itself out. Even even by the end of of the Magna Kai series, you're still excited whenever
1: you come across a lore stone. Yeah. As you said, that's exactly, that's a really good way to put it. It does not tire itself out as a device because it takes you to such varied areas. But now we're talking about the Magna Kai series, and this special is about the Kai series. A spoiler alert here. So um, from this point
0: on in the podcast, including today's. We're kind of pulling back on our spoilers. We've had a lot of spoiler warnings up and and like been careful about what we talked about. That was pretty easy to do in the Kai series because it's self-contained. But the lore, but the lore of the Magna Kai series gets so much deeper that it's nearly impossible to not spoil things. Things tie together. There's callbacks. There's there's people that come back from the earlier series and make big grand reappearances. So Spoiler gloves are off, and even for today's episode, since we're reminiscing about the Kai series, that's the point of today's episode, we are, we're going to open the gates and talk about anything that we want to,
1: specific sections. So, so, so heads up, uh, f- from this point for the rest of the, pretty much the rest of this podcast, if you don't want some of the, the, the plot points or the locations or even the resolutions of a few of the books spoiled, Now's probably a good time to pause. And with that, we're going to jump in to a reminiscence of the Kai series. We've had a, uh,
0: some responses from fans this time who thank you to everyone who recorded and left us amazing messages. Uh, we're going to be playing those throughout and we'll start off with some right here where you can just see how the this series has affected people uh, um, long term over the course of their life. Hi,
2: this is Marcus. Marcus Tan from Singapore, yeah, just to share uh, my thoughts and my views about the Long Wolf game books. And Lone Wolf did benefit me in a way, and I learned much. Well, In primary school, my English was quite bad, so I think after reading enough of the Long Wolf game books, uh, my level of English uh, went up to a reasonably high standard that I par- finally passed my uh, PSLE exams. And even up to the point where I was checking the dictionary for words like Vasconia, Somalang, Dureno and I was wondering why these words never appear in the dictionary at all (laughs) well that's a fun fact for sure (laughs) okay hope to hear from everybody on you soon thank you
3: My name is Shane Ross Smith and I'm a lifelong lone wolf fan based in Australia I don't remember how old I was exactly when I first read lone wolf I know I was 7 when I wrote my first gamebook and had it rejected for publication, so it was definitely well before that. Many years later as a graphic novelist, the black and white aesthetic of my monochrome books was heavily inspired by the art of Brian Williams and Gary Chalk in the Lone Wolf Game Books, art which I meticulously replicated again and again as a kid learning to draw. I was equally obsessed with the legends novelizations of the books, and John Grant was the recipient of my first ever fan letter way back when I first got an email account. I love the language of Joe Dever in the game books. It's dynamic, exciting, efficient, remarkably complex. These books might have been marketed to children, but vocabulary certainly wasn't dumbed down. I'm still learning new words at my endless rereads. But my greatest joy from Lone Wolf was reading books 1 to 20, the very same copies I read as a kid, reading them aloud to my 10-year-old son over the last couple of years. It was a pure joy to share a huge piece of my childhood with him and i pulled a nostalgia thread that snaked all the way back through my entire life. I feel very fortunate and proud to have been welcomed to the Lone Wolf team to assist with the definitive editions, potentially with other projects too going forward. I've been a professional writer for 15 years and this is by far my favourite gig to date. I can't wait to see what the future holds for Lone Wolf.
0: So one of the one of the easiest ways to reminisce, and it's very much in vogue now, right, is is making lists, lists of our lists of our favorite things. Um, So I thought we'd we'd start off with some favorite, some
1: favorite things from the Kai series. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this part as well, because to an extent, if you've listened to the last five podcasts, you've heard about our favorites, but maybe not in the detail that we're going to go to here. Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. It was something we noticed too. Um, People have really been positive in their response to the podcast. Uh, And we thank everyone who's left a review. They really, really help us out. They help keep this series going. Um, And it's a big series. We have plans to cover every book in the series. So we hope to be here for a long time. We We even have plans for what to come after we run out of books. But because there's so much to talk about, even per episode, sometimes we get to miss those like little details that later we go, how did we not talk about this? <laughs> and the first of those I want to jump into is what our favorite special item from the Kai series is. And, and I know I have mine right on my head, but I want to I hear yours, August.
1: Oh, it's got to be the culty Fireball.
0: Uh, okay, that's two for two. We
1: <laughs> we both agree. Call day Fire Sphere. Call day Fire but Sphere. But to be to be honest, we they may be our favorites for different reasons. Like why is it your favorite?
0: Well, you know, for me it's the Okay, so it's the utility item. Right. And I find that in a game book, it's really easy to get caught up in the numbers. You know, ooh, I got a sword that adds plus eight. And so it was really cool to get this item that had utility purpose. Sometimes, I mean, honestly, at a certain point, you you begin able to see in the dark with your Kai powers. So it kind of becomes, you know, useless more or less. But it, it was, it just, I, I connected to it more because it's a narrative item rather than a, than a gameplay
1: item. For me, uh, the the Calte Fire Fire Sphere was my favorite because of the fact, and and it even became even more so once I confirmed this. Uh, but for me, it was the meta aspect of it because, as, right. as we've talked about before, uh, one of the reasons why Joe even put it in the books was as a morality test. Right? What would you go? What what, what lengths would you go to to get j- this? Uh... This item, right? Right. Would you, would you actually, now, depending on the the options you take, you either utterly terrify two poor old guys (laughs) or you flat annihilate them. (laughs) It it is hard to look at that combat as anything other than jumping two old men trying to enjoy their dinner. Uh, They they, they haven't seen you. They haven't hurt you. (laughs) You're, you're creeping along. And you could just leave them alone, but if you do, you don't get the fire sphere. And in our in our podcast, didn't you reveal the that they are actually like
0: renegades of like they're fleeing Vonatar, like they're kind of good guys?
1: Uh, yes, yes, they are. They are part of the of the multiple small splinter groups of the of the culte that did not wish to serve the Brumel Mark under Vonatar's control. So you're yeah you're they wouldn't be allies as as noted if you do try to confront them they'll fight back um they're not allies but at the same time they're not your enemies not that you can know that at the time it's such a classic
0: it's such a classic like Dungeons and Dragons moment, right? It really? Where is. the DM is like, okay, I've got these friendly NPCs, you know, and then <laughs> then the party rushes in, kill everything.
1: And little, they're little dead bit. before they could get a word out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit. And so that's that's why it's my favorite, because I understood the meta behind it. Well, and as long as we are on
0: the topic of Colte, uh, someone did ask a question that we failed to address in the episode, and I wanted to ask it now. Um so in this in this in this book, uh, another special item you can get, which was a close runner up for my favorite, my, my, uh, because of just how interesting it is um narratively which is you can find one of the doomstones of Naros, which these, at the time that I first played these books, and of course, at this point, when you first, if you're reading straight through and this is the first time you get one, it doesn't mean a lot yet. But man, later you discover these things are like, these are the the lore stones for the bad guys and are incredibly powerful ancient artifacts of evil. And that led to this question, you know, if you have that doomstone in this book, Louis Kamar or Loy Kamar will say, you know, get rid of it. And he basically makes you throw it away, which is good because it would kill you. But yes, (laughs) yes, yes, it would. A question did arise. Why would he not wish to take
1: it back for the safekeeping of the Brotherhood of the Crystal Star? He has enough of an appreciation for what the stones really are to know that a the lone wolf absolutely has to get rid of it not only will it kill you but also it's i don't I don't want to keep making tolkien references but it's a bit like carrying the one ring it, it draws attention which he absolutely knows that that lone wolf cannot handle got it having the doomstone having, having the doomstone is going to draw the attention of nar the minions of nar and already difficult missions would just become impossible So it would probably also be a bad idea to
0: carry when you go face Vonatar. It it almost would be like having a, you know, um, like like a, a a bad luck charm on you, making an already difficult fight that much harder. Oh well,
1: absolutely. And not only that, but Vonatar might even be able to, considering no one really knows at that point what the Dark Lords have taught Vonatar. So there's every possibility that Vonatar would be able to control it or make it do things, even on Lone Wolf's person. So you never know. Just best to get rid of it. It also bears mentioning, I guess, that that Kamar is not
0: at his... He's like super weak at this point. So he doesn't even have access to his full
1: abilities to resist such a thing. No, certainly not. And he also knows at that point that he... Does not have the power. He might not even when he's when he's fully enabled, but when he's when he's weakened like this, he knows he couldn't destroy it yeah, the The doomstones still exist because, like the lore stones, they can be drained. they can be uh, they can be contained limitedly, but actually destroying them definitely beyond Loikamar at this point at so the doomstone is left in Kalte
0: to be picked up potentially at another time.
1: Right, right. It, it also doesn't hurt that most people in, in, in Summerland consider Coltate to just be this vast waste. So psychologically, at least, Lloyd Kamar is probably hoping that it'll just get lost here forever. Better than trying to carry it and have it corrupt them or try to destroy it when he knows he can't. It, it's not a great option, but it's probably the best one available to him at the time.
2: I love the lone wolf books. In book 3, The Caverns of Cult, you find yourself connected to another world lost in the ice and snow of the frozen wastes of the far north. The remnants of the ancients can still be found in certain places on your quest, and a fascinating example is the two old barbarians you come across with their fire sphere. That's my favourite item, the fire sphere. It's a spherical device that splits into two halves containing an ever-burning fire. It's as useful as it is mysterious and serves as a reminder of the strange frozen land as you go about your travels. It just gives you a feeling about the world of Magnumund, how ancient it is and how much there is to discover. Lone Wolf means so much to me. The first book I ever bought as a nine-year-old was The Dungeons of Torgar and I have been captivated ever since. In terms of favourite special item, I'm going to avoid things like the Sword of the Sun and really pivotal important ones, and go for something that uh, might be a little bit different. The Colte Fire Sphere. I loved it. I loved the fact that Lone Wolf's carrying around this round thing that just bursts into flames. You could be with a group of people in a forest, someone could say, oh, we have this food, if only we had a way of cooking it. Oh, it's okay, look, I'll just open this. Boom, flames, oh, we're being attacked by a monster. The monster's only weakness is fire, we have no fire. Oh, yes, we do, hang on a minute, I'll just open this. Boom, I loved it. I loved the fact that whenever you opened it, fire just erupted from it, and Lone Wolf's just carrying this thing around with him, and it's endless, endless fuel, endless fire. I just thought that was brilliant.
0: All right, my, ne- my next question for us, August, was what is your favorite set piece? Uh, this could be like a combat, or it could be, you know, something, a, a moment of a, a big action or-,
1: or scene of action. I I think, actually, I'm going to have to go with Shadow on the Sand. And the entire sequence that takes place in the sewers. Yes. Yes. What, what makes that for you? That, is, that really burned into my head. Um, when, I, I was, when I grew up, I grew up overseas. And I grew up in a military compound uh, until I was almost 12. And while well, we, we took a lot of vacations, uh, where I lived didn't have anything like sewers. Because we were in Saudi. And, and the, the complex was, was built over a large rocky bluff, so there were no sewers. So tunnels, caves, anything underground was absolutely fascinating to me. And uh, so when I read that, the idea of sewers and that you could adventure around in them was like, oh, this city has a dungeon, which is basically true. And I just found that absolutely fascinating. That is, that's a great, that's a great explanation for
0: why that grabbed your, grabbed your memory. And also, I mean, Joe writes those sewers. So, you know, well, it's a good, it's a great example of how Joe, it never feels like Joe has a dungeon for a dungeon's sake. The dungeons always make sense in the world and i love that i love that design sensibility it's not just like oh there's a dungeon here filled with monsters it's like no it's a sewer and it really made sense as to as to why it was there and why the things in it were there it wasn't like you went in there and there was a bunch
1: of undead right you know? <laughs> no there was just things that caused my arm to start to rot off that's yeah. <laughs> way worse <laughs> than undead oh and steam well, spiders i just love the name steam spider that that is well,
0: and we'll get to illustrations in a minute. That is that is not my favorite, but they are one of my favorite illustrations. Uh, it, it's a great look at at uh, at just how he he framed the page of that steam spider, uh, Gary Chalk. Oh yeah, absolutely. So then, what what's your favorite? Well, same book, same book. Uh, it's a little before that. It's it's really the um, it's everything. You arrive on Barracash, or, or you arrive at Barracash, and you are. Uh, cash Actually, sorry, cash It's everything before that. Actually, you arrive at Bearkash instantly. Your envoy is is you know killed, um, while trying to warn you about don't surrender, don't don't and travel you, with
1: Lone Wolf. Just never well,
0: and that yeah, he wasn't warned of that. Don't <laughs> travel with Lone Wolf, but also don't surrender here. And you get a really cool um chase. Through the harbor and then through the marketplace, and I love this for a couple reasons. One, I, I it really was though. Every time I read it to this day, I get the like Indiana Jones. You know, um, from the from the music that plays during the the third film, the every time, every time, every time, and it's really, it's really more Raiders of the Ark than it is, um, you know, the the third film, the the Last Crusade, but it it's it it just encapsulates. I felt like I was in a movie for the first time in the series. I felt like I was in a cinematic experience being running through this thing you could hear the shouts of the guards behind you and there is the real chance of failure here and getting caught which really made the
1: decisions in this section feel um tense oh right right no absolutely i completely agree the only thing missing from that that entire marketplace chase scene in in shadow on the sand would be like at the very end if you could just you know with your bow and arrow shoot a dracarim swordsman and walk away
0: if you just pull a, a Boris hand cannon and Bam, shoot, uh, Ma- Maruk or whatever his name is. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> that that would have just capped it for me. But
0: well, since we're on the subject of, of these interesting locations, let's let's jump into locations. What what is your favorite uh, location from the series? Uh, Graveyard of the Ancients. And once again, we match up. Once
1: again, of course. Every time I do, I read the first book. I always go there. I can't help myself. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I've stopped going there just to
0: see what the other paths hold. the The rewrite of the first book, which we didn't really cover much in in our episode of it, we were really focused on the on the original text more than the rewrites. Right. But the 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 definitive edition uses an updated, um, an completely rewritten version of the first book. And the graveyard there I went to again for the first time in years and had the same, uh, well, I died for one thing, but I had the same, <laughs> you know, experience uh, of, of just that, that lore. It's, it's your first, right? Do you agree with this? It's the first time in the book that you can actually realize, oh, there's a whole world in history here. I'm getting a
1: very small piece of. Yes, absolutely, because until then you're really just running through the woods or down a river bank and you it, it's like okay, this is a forest. I understand forests. But then you get to the graveyard of the ancients and suddenly everything changes. Like this this is this is men under the mountain kind of creepiness. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it the world opens up.
0: And and the world will continue to open up as the books go on, but but I mean right there in book 1 It's so cool that he didn't skimp on that. You know, they didn't, the option to go there is so much, it feels so much like a side quest, but it's a side quest with purpose and it's a side quest that really sticks with you. And can flat out
1: kill you in your face, dead. Many ways. (laughs) It's it's probably the worst way to go. (laughs) It's a terrible choice and I don't recommend it, but I do recommend it because it's awesome.
0: Well, and and that kind of takes me to the next favorite as well because I don't know if yours is from here, mine is not, but there are some excellent illustrations, uh even the little like mini illustrations uh of the graveyards of the ancients. I mean, there's the brilliant one when you first get there. Right. And and then there's one of my favorites from the original which is the 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 gem hovering over the ancient king's mouth. Yes. Uh that Man, that stuck with me at eight years old. What is your favorite illustration from the Kai
1: series, August? Ah, oh, there are so many good pieces of art. Um, I mean, because of how I was introduced to the books, it was also my introduction uh, to that art style. And especially you know that artist, Gary Chalk. Um, yes. I had never seen any work like his before. So every book was just new delights. Uh, I'm going to go for something probably most won't. Uh, I I really think that I just flat fell in love with nudniks.
0: Oh, yeah, the nudniks.
1: It's a great illustration. Do you want to describe it real quick for everybody? Uh, Okay, yes, I will. But I'm going to actually use the, the words that are in the passage. A large nudnik, wearing a brightly colored cloak of patchwork silks, orders several of his people to arm themselves and drive you out of the hall. But when you speak to them in their own language, a hush of astonishment fills the cavern. Never before have they encountered a human being who could actually speak their tongue. For some of them it's too much to grasp, and they stare at you open-mouthed, their furry little arms hanging loosely at their sides. Then the large Nudnik addresses you, saying that he is the leader of this colony. His name is Gashkis. He welcomes you and invites you to join him on top of a raised platform in the center of the chamber. Not to turn this man-man, eh? Where are you coming from, eh? Questions Gashkis in his curious, squeaky, nudnik accent. Now see, the illustration that comes with that is of a mouse man, or almost like a rat man, because the ears are smaller. Uh, the rodent. They're, the nudniks are basically little rodent humanoids. But the picture has this awesome nudnik holding a little spear and wearing just this coat that you can tell he's incredibly proud of, even while he's running away. And it's brightly colored, it's got patchwork, it's got all these little bits and bobs, and almost like a a Romani-style sash with bits hanging off it. And I just love that illustration. It's always stuck with me.
0: Yeah, and and for those who want to look at these illustrations, it, this one's on section 144 of Fire on the Water, and August did a great job of describing it. I mean, you know, it's funny cuz he said he's got this colored this colored um quilt patchwork robe and and it's in black and white. But August is absolutely right. I look at it and I think in color. You fill in the colors because Gary did such a good job of clearly in black and white displaying you know what is a quilt
1: work uh row right and he uses a little bit of cross hatching and a little bit of stippling he, he makes the individual pieces just even in black and white look like they're in different colors and i to this day still think that when i saw it it was in color I always double I double take every time I look at it. <laughs> no, that's a good point. I actually do think of most of
0: these illustrations in exactly. color though I definitely never saw them in color. Uh,
1: you, and, your brain just fills it in when it's great art. So Well, and book 2
0: in particular, Gary, I think it's it's a it's a high point. I don't want to I don't want to pretend that like after that it's downhill. It's not. But, you know, book 2 is the book that actually at one point you have to use the artwork to solve a puzzle and even his little illustrations that are not full page but are just you know in between sections they're very they're way more detailed than um a lot of future books will see uh, which again is not a comment on the quality it's just interesting that you know at this point something clearly gripped Gary in this in this text and he spent a lot of time on it. Yes.
1: Yeah, he that is that is one thing that especially as you start to work with Gary, you realize just how seriously even vignettes, even just little one-off pieces, just draw a sword. He still labors over that sword and it's great. The the work shows. And and he
0: does a great job of framing to, you know, this new Nick picture On 144, you know, the, the, the shoe, the tips of the shoes are coming out of the panel. The sword is just, he's holding a sword, which is probably like a a toothpick sized sword, but he's holding this sword and it's just slightly like, it's just slightly tilting out
1: of the panel, breaking the panel, the feathers on his hat come out. Right. Which is, Um, which is actually why I always remember it as a spear when it's not, It, it, it is a blade, but the way he's holding it and the way it juts out my, I always remember it as a spear.
0: And you'll see, as you flip through this book and other Lone Wolf books that Gary illustrated, you'll notice he ne- he tries to stay away from um just basic square frames. Right. You know, as even the the big illustration, page 350, the end of the book is this giant, you know, tableau, this giant mural of the death of Zagarna. And it it could very easily just fill the page. But instead, he creates this really interesting shape where it's, I can't even describe the shape. It's, it's almost like a house, you know, or a temple shape. And that's where the picture is encased in with these flags on either side of, of Zagarna's broken skull. Uh, not his skull, literally his, his flag depicting the broken skull. Really cool stuff.
1: What was your favorite illustration?
0: Oh, yeah, here, here I'm gushing <laughs> over yours. Um, I, I <laughs> well, mine is also from the same book. So it makes it easy. Um, and it is Section three fourteen, and it is it's a far less exciting moment. You know, you're not meeting strange creatures talking in uh, amazing voices. It's it's just an innkeeper. You're at this inn, but the illustration is amazing. It's a profile of this very decrepit looking innkeeper with like scraggly hair and a beat up hat and eye patch. And it's great. He only
1: has the one exposed eye. Yeah.
0: Right. And you don't even see the eye because of how Gary chose to to draw this from the side. It's just the eye patch. And there's this wonderful feeling of sinister, like there's a sinister um, feel to this picture, but also subservience. It's like, here's this guy with an eye patch, but then he also has a dirty towel wrapped over one arm and a plate of food delicately balanced in one hand. And then also just again, that framing that Gary does is out of control here. I mean, you've got not only a shape, but the shape that frames the whole picture is, is a window as if you're looking in through the in window framed by these gargoyles on either side. So there's a cemetery here that's amazing. And then a rat on the sill and its tail breaks the frame of the, you know, it it drapes over the windowsill and there's chips and there's moss. So it's never a complete shape. It's just a really, what an amazing picture for a very simple moment.
1: Right. Right. And, and the, it turns out the innkeeper isn't even the point of the scene. No,
0: not at all. He's
1: just there. He's just and there. And yet
0: perfectly captures the sinister, uncomfortable feel of that scene because you are about to be potentially poisoned. And, you know, you're, you're, you've just witnessed a murder. Um, and you know that one of your traveling companions is, is trying to kill you. And, you know, and yet, yeah, the innkeeper has nothing to do with it. I promise you, you know, he wasn't the murderer. <laughs> no. <laughs> <All along. laughs> Although there are all kinds of people you can blame falsely but he he but the look of him and the way that gary did this where it's almost like you are sneaking a look at something you're not supposed to be seen um and the presence of the rat just all and the gargoyles are pretty sinister it's just this li- these little clues that are like yeah this moment is is not a a it's not a moment of levity no. Um even though it's a it's supposed to be a moment of calm and and that is when Lone Wolf's illustrations are at their best, right? When when they're they're in they're informing, they're adding to the text. They're not just depicting right. the text, but they're adding to the to the experience. Well, of that's it.
1: a good favorite.
0: I like that. I'd say my favourite illustration
2: in the Kai series is from the final section of the Chasm of Doom where Lone Wolf emerges in the ruins and he sees the bandits being routed by cavalry. That's accompanied by a wonderful two page spread and the thing that really made it memorable to me is a depiction of a summoning army looking down on the fleeing bandits from a plateau and the lead rider holding the King's colours and being silhouetted by the moon which I really liked.
3: Uh, one of my favourite scenes in Flight from the Dark was actually one of the favorite weapons that I dealt with, as well as one of my favorite characters, which was Prince Pelethar. And you end up getting his sword, and you go on your way. And I ended up using the sword through most of the adventure. And then when you lose it in the second book, I always wondered, was that something that was ever recovered? And it was funny because whenever I found this group and I got with Richard Pinwater, and we ended up doing... Uh, an RPG adventure, Prince Pelothar's sword is actually one of the things we actually ended up was going to recover for my character, which is always this great, you know, this legendary weapon and in my mind that was going to be found, possibly used and recovered and placed in the place of honor for the Lone Wolf series.
4: Hello, uh, my favorite illustration would be the illustration in book two where uh, you've come down the stairs after potentially being poisoned and you see all of your coachmates kind of waiting for you and you're told to um, study the picture carefully to identify your would-be assassin Uh, I find that picture incredibly cool simply because it's uh, really the first and maybe only time in the series where uh, where an illustration serves to amplify the gameplay experience. Um, Other illustrations are simply there for effect, to obviously bring you into the world and make you feel a little more connected to it visually, but having that one two-page illustration uh, in the middle of the book, in the middle of your adventure, be such an important part of the journey and of the story itself is... um, stands out and is is pretty memorable to me, so uh, that would be my choice for my favorite illustration
0: so as long as we're on the subject of fire on the water, uh, there was a question that was asked after a, a number of people listened to the episode, and you know we talked about these 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 people that join you on the caravan and one is trying to kill you, but they all have these Fleshed out stories um from Joe's notes that we don't really get to hear as readers, you know they they have to be kept mysterious so we don't know who the 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 potential killer is. yet August did reveal that we do have those backstories, and people wanted to know what can we get some just
1: hints or overviews of each of these people and what their backstories are? all right, uh I can give some unfortunately uh we there's there are upcoming projects that that may very well delve into these characters, uh, and I don't want to give away anything that would be spoiled to that. So, but I can give some general ideas, uh, like okay, why don't we go with um, Dorie and Gannon, the two knights of the White Mountain,
0: and and fan favorites, as I as I've come to learn.
1: Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Even though, you know, you don't see them again, really. Uh, and they are, they're very barely defined here. Uh, you, however, it, you do get some great Gary, Gary Chalk art here, where you finally get to see the, before you even reach Durinor, you get to see Durinor's main symbol, which is the mountain peak with the stars on one of the shields. They are not just Knights of the White Mountain they are true elites. And that's not something that really comes out unless you accidentally, you know, accuse them in which case yeah, I was go- I was going to say <laughs> their, their stats suggest that they are awesome. <laughs> they might be the hardest straight fight in the entire Kai series. It is because it's the it's the one choice you can make where you end up having to fight two at once and right. it's bad. But those two they're not only normal knights they are they are exceptional even for their own kind and they they've always been uh, almost like a cut above the rest which is one of the reasons why they're here and traveling uh, i can't actually go into specifics there because again that that might come out in a later project but the the important thing to know about them is that they they've always been exceptional uh they are considered the best of the best with in uh, in Durinor. and when they do finally return home assuming that you haven't murdered them they have a fairly grand destiny ahead of them as well oh wow okay and uh what about what about
0: Viveka uh, uh, so she's Viveca, been probably I, I, focused I love, on yeah. Viveka <laughs> uh,
1: speaking of fairly grand destinies assuming that Viveka Uh, gets to survive this encounter with you. Uh, She has, uh, she's not what one would call a good person. She's not a bad person by any stretch, but she's very mercenary in her way, but she has a sense of honor and she's fair. And she goes on to, uh, to defend uh, a country that you end up visiting later. Bit of a spoiler. the, The Dark Lords war is coming. And we get into that in later books during yeah, the, the dark Magna Kai Lo- series yeah. right in the Kai series the dark lords war occurs uh interrupts plunges magnamund into violence and viveca ends up fighting on behalf of a nation at first as a mercenary and then as kind of a folk hero and our last uh, couple here
0: are we've got the merchant the the poor the <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> the the oh man that merchant <laughs> i i i mean i i I do feel sorry for him what one thing about the merchant that I always
0: found kind of funny uh halvork is his name is i I picture him like if there was the speed run version of Lone Wolf, if this is like the video game community um everyone would always attack Halvork because he's such an easy kill it's just all right you got to choose someone kill halvork you'll be done in a round or two move
1: on <laughs> right right if, if you're if you're if you're trying to speed run it but you need the experience just just nail halvork I mean pff, one of his one of his combat stats is a single digit it, it that's how <laughs> easy he is and it's just really sad uh halvork there isn't even a lot in his backstory uh, in Joe's notes but it is Noted that, and it's really tragic if he's the one you pick to kill because oh no. he didn't even want to be here I mean, <laughs> oh. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't even a merchant trip he was supposed to make. he's the Kevin Smith character he this oh, is a this little bit is the this this is the, I, I wasn't fun. even supposed to be here today <laughs> Normally he travels with his own guards. Uh, this time around he, he was running late, and his and his caravan's already out. So he takes a random carriage, and it it proves to be a terrible decision.
0: And this whole thing starts, and this is in the text with him getting beat up by uh, the killing in the overlord's, you know, men. They like they steal from him or something. I, I can't, or he doesn't pay his taxes or something. Yeah,
1: exactly. It's really, it's one of the reasons he really is the sad sack of the entire group.
0: Of the entire series. I don't know that anyone gets this sad of treatment in the entire You know, honestly, I think only, only Captain
1: Kelman, because of, uh, which, of everybody yes. who did not deserve their fate, Captain Kelman did not deserve his fate. But man, he went to it a little less kicking and screaming, at least. <laughs> true. Very true. And and then of course we
0: have the last character. You know, this is the one who is against you, Parsian. And what is
1: his story? Okay, he's the one that I can actually talk about the least, uh, because he is a member of the Order of the Serpent, and we've touched on them in the in when we did this book. the The Order of the Serpent is Vonatar's specifically trained elite group of assassins. He is extremely well trained. Unfortunately, his specialty is in ambushes, poisoning. And manipulation. Once you actually jump him, wait. If you decide he's the assassin, which again, spoilers, he is. That is where he is the least competent because he's still, an, he's still an a hard, Still, still not an easy fight. Not the, like at, a halvor. At this point in the no, <laughs> he's like three point <laughs> two Cal- halvorks. He he's he's bad. <laughs> but it's it's a it's a serious fight. But it's nowhere near the Dorian and Gannon. Oh, ouch.
0: Or Vivica, even, or even she's, Vivica. She's man. She's like she's a uh,
1: tensed for fight all the time. Right. It, it even it even notes if you try to attack her that she was expecting it. Right. Just because she's always expecting to be attacked. But yeah. So so if you uh, Parson, it's a tough fight, but it is his least proficient area of assassination is direct combat, which is why you have a chance of beating him. My only question about Parcyon, uh, assuming you can answer it, is, is he Summerlin born? Uh, Parsion is not Sumlending. Uh, he is specifically, he, well, he's not half Vasagonian, but he has Vasagonian blood. Uh, but he's familiar enough with the area that he can pass for pretty much anyone from Northern, uh, Northern uh, Magnamund, which is why he was trained by Vonatar.
5: Hi guys, it's Dan Webster from the UK, lifelong fan of the series. These are without a doubt my favorite characters, settings and adventures in any medium I've come across. Uh, My book collection is my pride and joy that's still ever growing. Thanks to the great work of Ben and his team. Keep up the good work. And of course you guys with the podcast I look forward to each month. Now I can roll three of the questions pretty much into into one, uh, which would be combat encounter, illustration and an insta-death. And I'm referring to the two Hellgast encounters in book two, Fire on the Water. Without giving any spoilers, it's the initial section where you can acquire a magic weapon and there's a distinct path of answers that you have to follow to, to actually get it. I think as a kid, I had it written down each time to make sure that I did. Whereas an adult now, my memory not so great. I just try and remember the path you need to take. Um, and by getting this weapon it enables you to actually fight for the first time a hellgast, and it's quite tough and I always remember it as being a really difficult encounter the first time you face down with one of these creatures Um, made even more so by the way that it's described uh, when it changes from a human form into a hellgast, with its skin decaying and peeling back from its skull its eyes burning with a red glow two long fangs protruding from its jaw that description always stuck with me and it ties in really nicely to the second time you come across a hell and this is where if you do not have the magic weapon and you didn't fight it in the initial section either you would come across an insta death and it's that shock and realization especially the first few times like how do i how do i acquire this weapon what did i miss and you get that shock of insta death um but on that second encounter on that page section 134 is an excellent probably my favorite Gary Chalk image of the Hellgast face which links into that description of it in the earlier section. It's just fantastic and whenever I think of any kind of description of an evil creature of any kind or the look of any evil creature of any kind I always come back to that with the Hellgasts. So thanks very much, keep up the great work and as always for Summerland, Amakai.
0: So next up is uh, honestly one of the ones I'm most excited for. And this is the instant death sections. I-, I think that, you know, we all, we all have memories of that, your life and your quest and here. Uh, so I want to know
1: which one stuck with you the most, August, or what's your favorite? You know, uh, and I know that it, we just finished talking about, you know, Shadow on the Sand. Uh, and I really think that. Chasm of Doom and Shadow on the Sand is where you can see Joe get into his stride, right? Narratively, the scenes and transitions and locations, the the book 4 and book 5, the end of the Kai series is really where he he settles in and he knows the lore and he knows the place and and all the scenes that he describes start to get really detailed, which is why a lot of my favorites come from these later books. It's for instant death, it's gotta be the black cube. Now, which version, which
0: one? Is it the one where you uh, get blasted on the balcony or? Uh, basically,
1: the one where you explode in midair. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause it's, it's, it comes at the climax of what's gonna be this awesome scene. And also one of my favorite combat encounters, of course, on the back of the Icatar. But that just the, the whole. You're up there, and it's awesome, and then, oh by the way, did you loot the cool black cube? Sorry <laughs> I love it, I love it every time, because why wouldn't you loot it? It's this cool black crystal cube why why wouldn't you take it well, and it's an
0: example of you know how the how dying is as memorable as completing the adventure, which really is you know if you, if you it, it's not fun to die um especially when you're thinking man i i've struggled so hard to get here so it's got to be it's got to be interesting and well written and and kind of cine- well very cinematic to really make oh, it absolutely.
1: stick absolutely absolutely oh and it's in a car I- Another example of my dyslexia, of course, is that I often flip letters like these. For the for the longest time, it was an ikitar to me, but it's not. It's an itakar.
0: Well, depending on whether uh, you both crash to the bottom of the of the dry main, it very well could be an ikitar. Oh, it's
1: definitely ikitar <laughs> by the time you're finished. That's for sure. <laughs> well,
0: my my pick for this is uh, similarly. It it's one of those. Um, it's not a. It's it's a it's a death that has meaning beyond and and I love the moment. It's almost like the. It's one of those where it's a bad ending rather than a sudden death. And it's from a book that we actually haven't talked a lot about today, which is Chasm of Doom. Um, this might be my favorite instant death in the entire Lone Wolf series. Oh, wow! It certainly has stuck with me. Um, as something you could do with instant deaths. And it comes after um, you, you make this misstep and you get, you get knocked out and the way you're thrown into this cell. And it simply says you are unable to stop the sacrifice. When the time comes for your cell door to open, it is the bony hand of a skeleton that turns the key. And, man i love that because it without in so few words it tells you exactly what's happened outside of the world and how big your failure is yeah it's it's kind of a raccoon city death yeah it, yeah right and and what i love about it is that it it almost sets up an entirely new timeline in which you could set adventures
1: in you know the bad timeline well right cuz you can easily take away from that scene you could take away the idea that you you don't die you fight your way out and suddenly you're in freaking medieval raccoon city surrounded by the undead.
0: Yeah so these stories where or these endings where the story continues I, I just find really interesting. Well I mean right. it doesn't continue for you your life in quest end here but you know right. it, it it goes beyond just well, Lone Wolf is dead. It's no, the world has changed because of your death. That, that's, that's good DMing. You know, when, it, when a character dies in a D&D game, uh, it, you want to make it matter.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so, many of the, so many of the deaths, the instant death sections are at least the kind that raise other questions like this one. Yeah, that, that's a good favorite. I like that one.
0: Well, we're running. We're running a little short on time, so I want to get to. um, I want to do one more favorite, and then jump into our main event, which is our rankings. Sounds good to me. But it really would be remiss to not do the favorite Kai discipline. And I,
1: I'm curious to know what's your what's your favorite. Okay, so when I play through the books. Nowadays I randomize the disciplines cuz I know the books too well. Right. I I know the quote unquote optimum choices. So when I play them I I I just randomize them. Uh but when I didn't for the longest time I always took sixth sense. Yes, yep. I I just I find it to be Just fascinating to me because it's really the aside from of course mind blast and mind blast and mind shield, it's the one that really says Lone Wolf is supernatural. He has powers, and I just and I just love that. And then of course you know mind over matter, not always very useful but really cool. So yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd have to go for Sixth Sense. One of the
0: things I like about Sixth Sense was that it, it opened up new narratives. You know, right. I, I want as a kid, I was like, I want to know everything. Right. And so taking Sixth Sense was the only way to get access to the deepest levels of lore. Uh, but later on, I realized that tracking also was a bit of a lore shield. Um, what I mean by that is it was like a gate, a lore gate. You could, you know, behind tracking, lay all these other stories and information. I love the idea of you're traveling the world and you're reading the signs of this world and are opening, showing you different paths or clues or, you know, it's, it's it's a book that there's so much lore that's happened before you got there that sometimes even finding a body and being able to use tracking to tell why this body is here, what might have happened to them is just fascinating to me
1: right and the disciplines are also this great way for joe to gate not only what lore you learn but to show you how much lore lone wolf already knows
2: this may be controversial but favorite instant death well during the first five books i didn't suffer an instant death and i know there'll be some people no way how could you not have died there were some fights that got really close there were sometimes i'd be really low on endurance points but i didn't suffer an instant death i obviously as a kid was very good at game books the first instant death i actually suffered was in the plague lords in book 13 when i remember i can remember vividly being outraged at a random number roll leading me to falling off some platform and dying and I can remember thinking I'm lone wolf I've traveled to the darklands I've defeated dark lords I've been here I've been there I fall off this and instantly die I can remember being outraged but in the first five books I didn't suffer one
0: Well, let's jump into the main event. This is where August and I have ranked the series. So here's how we did this just so people know we um we assigned values to the books, and it wasn't just a simple one, two, three, four, five. you know, the, the, it's an exponential curve if if August said, you know, a book was was his favorite and I said it wasn't my favorite, it's going to get dragged down the list a bit. If we both picked a book that we didn't wasn't our favorite then you know it's going to come up pretty near the bottom. So that's kind of how this works. So we're going to start at the bottom and 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 note that these aren't this isn't bad. It's not like okay, the one at the bottom is a bad book.
1: Right. When you rank them, it's not a it's not a, con, a condemnation of any particular book. It's just something has to be fifth. Right.
0: Exactly. And in this case, fifth place uh was Chasm of Doom.
1: Chasm of Doom. And does that does that surprise you at all August? Not really. Not really. I mean the the shadow on the sand has the benefit of being the, the big double book. It, then again, and then you have the first one always going to be a favorite of somebody. Then there's yeah, of them all that doesn't surprise me at five.
0: Yeah, and and I think, you know, I actually really like the story in Chasm of Doom and it introduces my favorite villains, the acolytes of Vashna. But it does, compared to the others, it feels like there was more he had to cut. Joe had to cut. Um, and, and it could have benefited from being a double book almost, you know, than
1: as much as Shadow on the Sand. Oh, I, I don't think anyone would dis- disagree that all of these books, for the most part, feel like there's enough story for four five hundred sections. The book in fourth place might surprise you. Okay. This
0: was Fire on the Water. Book two. Okay, that, that is actually
1: surprising. I would not have expected that.
0: And this might anger some fans, but but that it's actually my least favorite of the first five. Really? Okay. And it was kind of in the middle. It was right in the middle for you. And that's right. why it ended up dropping this low. I will say this, in defense of why I always put this book la- last, it is the most linear of the books. Absolutely. It, it just has to do with the writing is amazing. The story is incredible. The pacing is great. The scenarios are great, but there's just not that many reasons for me to replay it. And I have replayed it a number of times when I'm doing my runs of the series. And it's the one that I always get a little bored in just because my choices don't, mat- don't feel like they matter as much as
1: some of the later books, and, some, and and honestly, book one. I kind of feel the same way. I'm not actually as bothered by, by linear gameplay or replayability, as long as my first time through was memorable, which is why it's hard for me to rank any of these as less than one, because I, I loved the story in all of them. I, I get why linearity can matter, so yeah, absolutely. It, your, your choice doesn't surprise me once you explain it like that. Yeah, I, I, put, it, I put it right in the middle. So and 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 enough. listeners if you haven't heard me talk about this already you will come
0: to hear me linearity linearity is a bugbear for me uh that will come up later in the series too but yeah you know i i do lean heavily into the the game aspect of of a choose your own you know style adventure and um it does affect my my liking of a book if I if I know I'm gonna be reading it multiple times, especially if I'm dying to a, to a
1: stupid mast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that mast! Oh, but all right. So, what's next? Book three is
0: or or, or spot three is also book three. Cavern caverns of Calte. Which I I know gets some flack uh, from from fans sometimes. I, I've I've heard mixed responses to this, but I think any everyone would agree that the setting and the the mission are are both awesome. You know, go bring a renegade traitor wizard back from a frozen icy waste, and honestly, it is that setting that puts it that puts it high on my list. Oh sure, sure,
1: yeah, it's. Again, everything has to have a rank, so some things get ranked lower than they deserve, it's just the way it is. For me, it's four, just because of how I rank them, Uh, but, uh, oh yeah, the the new setting, the new creatures, that baby in a backpack with a bow... And, you know, while it does get very
0: linear uh, near the end, you know, there is a, a path you have to take once you're in the, the the fortress. The opening offers so much exploration that I just, I I love this book. It's actually my second favorite.
1: It feels like a frozen trackless waste, which is yes. great. Yeah. But then there's the baby in the backpack with a bow. <laughs> <sighs> <laughs>
0: I think people will be surprised that our number two book is Flight from the Dark. You know, it's the first book in the series. It is a little bit more rough in terms of its writing. Um, not the, the, you know, the, when you read it next side by side to the definitive edition where Joe rewrote the text, it's remarkable how much you can see how much he grew as a writer and how much lore he added. Yes, just how much oh, more yeah. he knew the world. But I will say it had two things really going for me. And that is the non linearity. I mean, it, especially the original version, you just feel like you're going, you're lost in the woods. And honestly, just
1: the setup. I mean, it's Ooh, a setup oh, that yeah. sustained a series for 40 years. Now, this this is one of those moments where I do have to say that as much as I love the rewrite, uh, and I love the... The the rewrite originally came from the collector's edition uh, that was written in 2008, um, where you had a vastly expanded introduction. I know a lot of people love that. You certainly have the option to get better gear uh, you meet a lot of actual Kai, uh, they all then die, but you get to meet them, it's more active, but honestly for me, nothing's going to beat, hey, grab some firewood, boom, stick, unconscious. And, and regardless of which version you're reading, you are still the
0: last survivor of an order, right. and your mission to warn the king, and you are not the best you're not the best member of that order.
1: It's just a great place to start a game. It, it is. It is. Uh, which is why I I honestly do prefer the classic intro. But they're both great. And they both do end up with you. Uh, you definitely wouldn't have been Kai's first choice but you're what he's got left. <laughs> you're not his first choice, but you were literally his last choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're, you you were you were literally the last chicken in the shop. Yeah, that that's what you got.
0: Now no one's going to be surprised by book number 1. This one ranks high on the list of best book in the entire series of of Lone Wolf books and all the associated materials and that is
1: Shadow on the Sand. And man. What's not to love about Shadow on the Sand? It's a double-length adventure. You go to two very different places. You get to ride on a giant Ittakar. Uh you, you it's great. There's it's wonderful. It's got that Indiana Jones feel, like you said. It, and it and it, again, it, it hits on everything we love. I mean, it's an
0: interesting environment. It's very nonlinear in the sense that. I mean, right off the gate, there are two different books essentially that you can play. One where you are escaping from the dungeons and doing this almost Prince of Persia run through the palace. And then another where you get to, you know, well, get to, you get to explore the sewers. (laughs) You have to explore the sewers. Yay! I'm in the sewers.
1: Barrakesh is great.
0: But I mean it's all very memorable. You know, the and and attention is given to every location from the palace of the Zakhin to the sewers under uh Barrakesh, to even like certain encounters you have in the harbor, you know, swimming around under these boats and getting attacked by a
1: bloodlug. I mean, these are just f- memorable. Ex- exploring the marketplace desperate to hook up with some drugs.
4: Mhm.
1: Mm-hmm. Not joking <laughs> I mean- there. No, no, you, you literally have to go find a drug. It's for a really good reason, but uh, yeah. Or, or not depending yeah. on dezoi- decisions you make,
0: you may never even know about, you know, needing the the drug and, and again, O-eed. that just, yeah, yeah the, the yeah. weed, not needing some weed. Um, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, it's even called OED. <laughs> you really are trying to score weed. It, it's a great book. How could it not be number one? I even I even put it over Flight from the Dark. And that's a place very few books could ever go. But yeah, Shadow on the Sand. Do you wanna just quickly, uh August, reveal your rankings,
0: uh your personal rankings, and I'll reveal mine?
1: Oh, okay. Well my personal rankings are really simple. Uh Shadow Shadow on the Sand goes to the number one spot, and then the rest are in order. So number two is Flight from the Dark, number three, Fire on the Water, number four, Caverns of Calte. and then number four and then number five is chasm of doom and mine are a little bit more varied it's a it, uh,
0: shadow on the sand definitely number one uh then caverns of calte for that environment that i just love um then we've got flight from the dark for the non-linearity we've got chasms of chasm of doom um i just i really it's it's it's. i love the story and it's just still uh has a couple big non-linear choices and then you've got book two for like I said, it just it's a little too linear for me um, as a game book. But I I love the I do still love the narrative, and you can't beat that that final triumphant moment.
1: Right, literally none of these rankings are, are any kind of commentary on the story itself. No, absolutely
0: not. And uh, and and man, all of these adventures prove pretty high marks. When we come into the Magna Kai series, we I will say that I I do think Joe measures up to the bar set here. May not reach quite the heights of Shadow on the Sand for a while, but uh, amazing adventures coming. And I think he does it by going in a very different direction. It's not it's
1: not the it's a very different feel. These books. Oh, right, right. The the initial reaction that fans had and the sales that occurred for the first five books are the reason that that Kingdoms of Terror onward even happened. So it was a very high bar, but he definitely met it, and then he just excels himself past that. And here we are talking about them forty
0: years later. So, yes, something was done right. And the last thing I'll say about the Magna Kai, just as a bit of a teaser for you, uh, when we start it next month, the Magna Kai series uh, does start to introduce new some some interesting new mechanics. Nothing completely you know changing to the way you play the books, but there are there's range combat. You can do um, you get bows and arrows. Uh, there are new powers, and there's these improved versions of your power, like the longer. Uh, you, the more you level up, the stronger all of your powers get. Where you get these really funky and and cool new abilities. We won't talk about those today, but as a bit of a teaser for what's coming, um, it, it, everything bulks up. Once again, we want to thank all the fans who took the time to send us messages and um and and let us use your voices to add to our own today. And we um, will do another special uh, in the future when we leave the Magna Kai series. Um, and and we'll, we'll invite fans to join us again for that. So keep an eye on our Facebook page um, or our Discord. We will see you next time. or I hope, We hope that you'll join us as we begin the Magna Kai quest. But until then, First Summerling, Summerling and the Kai. Thank you for listening to another episode of Journeys Through Magnum. We hope you've enjoyed this revisiting of one of fantasy's longest running series. The music you're listening to now is Forged in the Sun, a new musical track from the Brotherhood of the Crystal Star, whose mission is to create music inspired by the Lone Wolf series. Visit brotherhood.rocks to get more awesome music from them. The opening music for the Lone Wolf podcast is composed by Ed Hicks, and incidental music comes from Alexander Nakarada. Visit his Patreon and become a patron to receive royalty free music for your own podcast and other audio projects.